Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Fernando Tarnagal. He is an AI team training lead at Invisible Technologies. Uh, I've been meaning to interview Fernando for a long time. Fernando was one of the first people that I met at Invisible. He's been doing some crazy, crazy stuff um, in the in the back in the background. And he's also from Argentina, where I'm currently, and was uh, kind of inspired me to come down here. And now I've set up my shop in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, if any of you ever come down here, please let me know. Um, and uh, so, welcome to the show, for. Thank you very much, Stuart. Very, very happy to be here. We've been planning this for a long time, so it's ha finally happening. Finally here. So what is the most interesting thing that you've learned about AI in the last week? In the last week? Well, uh, how, how to summarize it? I think uh, one of the most important developments I've seen this week uh, was uh, regarding Google's uh, you know, incursion into, well, at least public and publicly now into, into uh, generative image territory. Um, they are also integrating that into BARD. Quick tip, not just available for every country right now, but uh, if you're in the US, you're probably in luck. If you do any Google search and at the top right, you click on Google Labs, you can enable BARD within Google. So I think that's something that has been making some ripples uh, throughout the past few days. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more as Google starts integrating all of their platforms under that big AI umbrella. Mm -hmm. And it's so crazy because Google is just such a giant. They've got all of the tensor units. You know, they they invented the, the I, I think, the TPU. They in, I don't know if they invented their own chip, but they definitely invented their own cloud computing platform for AI and all these different things. And it's been so interesting to watch how, um, you know, the other competitors have come in and essentially blocked Google from doing it. And now Google's uh, entering, but kind of slowly and like with, with various false starts and everything like that. It's just a fascinating thing. What do you think? Well, as every big company, you know that you have to move forward, but you are always very afraid to break things or, or potential negative PR. So it's a lot easier for startups or our stealth companies uh, to be a lot more disruptive. So I think that a lot of the movement that we are seeing nowadays is absolutely built on top of Google's arch architecture in a way, right? Uh, so I think they got leapfrogged because of... Uh, corporate politics in a way, uh, the fact that you need to answer to a lot of shareholders. So that tends to 
uh, stale uh, progress in a way. So in a way, it was a situation that was bound to happen at some point. But now I think Google's catching up again. They are, you know, uh, achieving escape velocity. So we'll know how these new contenders uh, face up to, to the behemoth. Mm. Uh, and so it's very interesting you said that all because you've you, before you were invisible. You, I know we've discussed this personally many times. You were involved in the crypto world, um, and so you understand this new world that we're entering, which which a lot of people kind of lost hope in this new world that we're entering due to the last bear market. But you, I know you think about this a lot. Can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your background before invisible, and then maybe how you got an invisible too? All right, I'll try to summarize uh, my. Story started in the early 2000s uh, when call centers were all the rage. Uh, that was my first job working for Microsoft Networks, uh, doing uh, troubleshooting for their um, NSN service. And right after that, I moved to HSBC, where I worked in training, learning, and development. Then uh, I also worked more as a, as a generalist, uh, focusing on, on, on uh, HR then in 2008, uh, I got my degree in 2007. I'm a psychologist. I moved to the United States where I worked for Devro Advanced Behavioral Care, which is one of the largest mental health care providers uh, in the United States. Uh, I, I worked there for four years uh, managing um, residential and campus uh, units where we treated people, we had interns, I, they were kids who were in trouble with the law or who had psychiatric issues or behavioral problems. Then I worked with adults with different types of disabilities, always managing their treatment plans and coordinating the activities uh, and their living in a way. And I moved back to Argentina at the end of 2011. And right at that time, uh, I was lurking in a, an internet forum called Meant to Be Seen 3D. It's MTBS3D.com. And just hanging in there, I met a guy who was like 19 years old. And this guy turned out to be Palmer Lucky, the creator of the <laughs> Oculus uh, Rift and the Oculus company that then got bought uh, by uh, Facebook. So back, in, back then, he was working with a glued uh, prototype of, of what would be a headset. It was just a phone screen, like a Galaxy, like an old Galaxy Note screen strapped on to an IMU, a couple of sensors, some pre-primitive pre optics, and a lot of, 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 of blue, you know. Uh, so that whole industry uh, started take, uh, taking up there. Uh, it was a wild west. You could see, you know, uh, like at the very beginning, we were no more than 90 or 150 people working on this or knowledgeable that this was happening. So th those were very exciting days. Back at that time, I, like my marriage with psychology was not going through its best times. And I've always been a geek. Uh, in the 80s, uh, I would have been called a nerd. Um, so I found a way to, to, to you know, just merge my passion for technology and my passion for psychology and create new things. So that's when I developed uh, Phobos, which was a VR platform to treat and research phobias. A few years later, uh, uh, when uh, Apple launched their a AR kit, uh, I migrated Phobos to uh, an augmented reality version, 
We've been doing uh, research since 2018 with Thomas More at Belgium University to validate the technology because Phobos AR was the world's first markerless AR product in the world. So there was no scientific validation. We had to do the, all that. Uh, in the middle, uh, the uh, blockchain wave hit us. Uh, so it, I had been following Bitcoin since the early days, like 2012. I've even mined some Bitcoin using a console. I don't want to know what, where that hard drive is because I just left it there for a couple of years. And yeah, let's not go in there. <laughs> uh, I, I'm the Argentinian pizza guy. Um, so uh, I, I got back into blockchain in 2007. At, at first, it was just... Uh, speculation, you know, financial speculation. But then as things progressed, the technology evolved, we got smart contracts, um, a whole new world opened. So I started working uh, uh, with the technology, this time more in the doing uh, tokenomics modeling or business model business modeling for startups that w wanted to incorporate that technology or even companies that wanted to incorporate uh, blockchain technology in their operations. Uh, um, I did consulting for, for, for some time there. And while at the same time, uh, I was working uh, at a mass media outlet in Argentina, which is also it's complicated. It's also like an advertising a, a company and a, an innovation consulting company. I was doing that in tandem. And when the in November, December of last year, when I saw that the catalyzers, catalyzers were there for AI, I was like, Okay, this wave starting to form. Got to ride it because it could be the ultimate wave. But in this case, I was in a way completely illiterate. Like with previous technologies, I could code, I, I could do things. But this, I was completely out of my game. So I was like, okay, how do I get into this thing? And I found Invisible. And I was like, all right, maybe I could do a three-month uh, stint, learn how AI, traders are, uh, AI trading is done, what reinforcement, uh, how reinforcement reinforcement learning is applied so i joined invisible and i joined the company and it was like hey i like it here uh, i think i could stay longer <laughs> i could go re restart my career in something different so here i am that's very cool so i love what you said about once the ai came out it was like oh this is like a new form of technology and i've been talking to a lot of people about this and how essentially ai is a sort of alien intelligence. Um, and it's it's not like the last 50 years of automations where you have very you know fixed inputs, fixed outputs, you get a bug, something goes wrong, you know what the bug is. And But with this new form of intelligence, it feels like a, a, a step function, like a different thing. It feels like when you're talking with the AI, you're an AI whisperer. You need to train how to become an AI whisperer. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that's accurate? Well, uh... You know that usually theory comes a lot earlier. Well, always theory comes earlier than the practical application uh, of that science and turning it into a technology. So, in that regard, I think that the basis for what we are seeing now was born a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. even more. Uh, we're moving from a deterministic model to a non-deterministic model. Uh, in grade school, we we're still teaching Newtonian mechanics when we know that the paradigm has been relativity and quantum mechanics for quite a long time. But we are seeing this massive shift, both in quantum computing and also AI. We're 
you know we're we're into black box territory in a lot of regards uh we're also exploring uh cold fusion as well which also in a way functions like a black box mm. um so uh, i i think that we're like we use the word para- paradigm a lot and the way we use it is not well applied well society ha- has modify the meaning of it but originally paradigm uh the term was coined by uh imbra khan uh he spoke about scientific revolutions and, and how scientific revolutions evolved how there's a period of crisis when the current model doesn't work so it needs to be replaced so there's a period of chaos there while we figure out what how we're going to build with this new cumulus of knowledge that we've developed and i think this is exactly what's happening right now is we, we are living the transition between actual paradigms. Yes, very interesting. I love what you said about uh, who was it? The um, the guy who coined the term paradigm. I didn't quite catch his name. What was his name? I'm going to type it for you. I don't know how you would pronounce it, but it's Imre Kun. Imre Kun. Okay. If anybody's yeah. interested, I-M-R-E-K-U-H-N. Uh, scientific paradigm. I love it. Crisis. Uh, it, yeah. And the structure of scientific revolutions is the name of the book. Um, there's a great YouTube series about philosophy of science that I really got into talking about all of this different stuff, but, and that's, that's within the science. And then there's also this interesting interplay between the science and society as you, as you talked about. And so it's sort of a back and forth thing. And there's crises in both because there's crises in the science just related to like, Oh, that, you know, the Newtonian paradigm no longer works for this part. You know, it still explains a lot of, over there. But with this new quantum thing, it's like, oh, man, like what's going on? Like my I, me as the observer affects what's being observed. Like that's a big thing. And so then it goes into society. And now this AI is such another, another interesting kind of take into it. I know we discussed last time we met in Buenos Aires that neither of us we agreed that neither of us could peer very far into the future whereas before it was somewhat easier to peer into the future but i'm going to ask you where are we headed next in this crisis not only the crisis but where are we headed next in terms of the opportunity and the potential as well as we discussed the other day uh, um i think that what with the velocity uh that things are evolving right now I think that if someone would could tell you with certainty what we're going to be doing in five years, that person is a charlatan. Uh, like a couple of years ago, we were able to foresee trajectories of our potential futures. Right now, we're in the realm of science fiction. Uh, so I, I think we are experiencing a crisis, whether we are aware of it or not. The level of disruption that we are starting to experience and we will experience, I don't think we've, we've seen anything like that in recent times. And with the speed of change that we have right now, I don't think we've even witnessed a situation like that in our whole history as a species. Uh, so the problem I see is that technology and science advance so much faster that the institutions that regulate how we use that even more like i i think like that th- there's a continuum to be made like of how adaptable we are like when we're kids we are just you know malleable we can adapt to anything 
as we grow up, we tend to, you know, become a little bit more conservative in, in some ways. We don't learn so that, that faster anymore. You go a step forward and then you have the institutions that educate us, call it the family, call it, call it uh, school, university. And these structures take longer to adapt. On top of that, we have governments and other sup supranational bodies that even take longer. So this technology has hit us like a tsunami and we haven't seen that. So how are we as individuals, as families, as educational communities, or as countries, as, as a civilization, how are we going to adapt fast enough to absorb the change that this technology is in a way imposing onto us. Because mm -hmm. right now it seems it's open source. A lot of it is open source. It's gonna grow bigger. So we don't have the tools or systems to in a way control where this is going to go. And we'll need to build those systems. And that's a big guess. Yeah, and we'll need to build those tools, build those systems, be more adaptable. And for people like us as early adopters, it's pretty exciting uh, uh, because, but it's also that I'm, I'm, I'm not too afraid. I guess I should ask you, are you afraid? Do you have any fear? Uh, I would say it's, I have concerns. I wouldn't say fear, I have a lot of concerns. And I agree with a lot of people that the chance of this being catastrophic is non-zero. Mm -hmm. I cannot put a number. No, no one can, right? Uh, but I would say the percentage is not zero. So we should at least be concerned. Like every new technology or every technology, I, I, I use the scalpel analogy. Like you give a scalpel uh, to a doctor and he's probably going to save your life. And you give it to a psychopath and he'll probably kill you. And if you give me a scalpel, I'll probably use it to eat beef. So how do we train ourselves to use this scalpel that we were given because this scalpel next week it can turn into a chainsaw yep and <laughs> um very interesting okay uh so let's take it so this is very, very interesting from a metaphysical standpoint and societal standpoint uh let's take it into kind of what where have you gotten it wrong in the past six months? And I mean this in, in totally like, you know, I think you're probably aligned with me in the sense that we, you know, when we get things wrong, it's like opportunity for learning. Uh, what what back in March or May, uh, actually probably, so November 2022, that's when ChatGPT first came out. And then I believe it was in March or February, no, it was January uh, 2023. That's when ChatGPT 3.0, no, when 4 came out. And then there is a step function. Uh, and wh what do you think, wh what did you get wrong in that beginning? Where did you, th where did you think it was going and where did it actually end up? Okay. So when, when back then in November, when all this started, I think I declared myself incompetent. Um, and, I think I, I don't want this to sound the wrong way. I don't think I got anything wrong because I just could, couldn't get anything like immensity, like grasping the immensity of what was happening. I would have needed a lot more compute power uh, to be able to say, okay, I can forecast and, and do this. And uh, I think 
nowadays I'm humbly ha having this position of just saying like, I'm in no position. I'm no expert in this. No one is. It's moving too fast. It's impossible to be up to date with everything that's going on. So any projection that I could make for this technology is lacking a lot of context and information. Yes. So in a way, I think everybody's advancing within their own silo uh, inside of this industry. And we're moving forward. Some have the policy of let's build and break as we go. Others are taking the cautious approach of let's research this before we do anything. So everybody's moving at the similar uh, paces. And that, that's also so something new. Uh, before, when you saw exponential tech emerging, there was a general consensus. There was alignment, at least within the community that was birthing these technologies. Nowadays, you see such a dispersion, you know, that, 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 that in every regard, it's such a different landscape. And of course, there's so many, an impossible amount of opportunity, but it's also difficult to discern, okay, I have a business idea. Is this going to be alive in one year? I've vetted investment projects and I have given them like 1.5 to two years of life expectancy. And I would say to the investor, look, if you're okay with this, you're going to make money for one and a half, for two years. In the meantime, you're going to look elsewhere or divert some of those gains yeah. somewhere else because this product is going to die. Mm. I mm -hmm. don't think we have that foresight right now. Brilliant. Because, okay, yeah, because so... You mentioned something about context, which is really interesting. I want to put a pin in that because the context is so important for AI. But what you just said is also very interesting because it also is happening. If we look back at history, you know, Aristotle was the polymaths of all polymaths. Aristotle wrote a book on everything. And then those books got lost. Uh, and then they, they we found Aristotle's books. And Aristotle's books became all the different disciplines. And then from like 1600 to 1800, you could have polymaths who could master different fields. Like you could have somebody who's a great at chemistry and also great at physics. And now we're in a world where that no longer exists. You've got people like Stephen Wolfram, who is a polymath in a lot of different fields, but he can't, he can't have all the different things. There's a whole bunch of people who are really smart, but even for the smartest people, there's no way that they can actually understand everything that uh, enough to become experts in all these different fields. And now it feels like to me, there's another thing happening, which is that even within the space of AI, you have really brilliant AI researchers who just don't have the ability to have as much compute and input in order to understand what's going because the pace of change is happening so quickly. And so it's really interesting, but then we've got the AI now and the AI has become the polymath of all polymaths. Like you go and have a conversation with it about physics and the next day you can have a conversation about chemistry and you can get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and go have another conversation with chemistry. And you, I know you know what it takes to uh, train this thing. Um, and I know you know the limitations and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the same as a, having a human being who studied physics for the last 45 years answer your questions, but it is open 24 seven and it gets about 80% of it right. Um, and so what's your thought on that about this polymath 
thing and AI being this polymath and how that's going to intersect, basically. Okay, th this is how, how, how I see it. Uh, we have a beach and we have the ocean over there. And I am this person from the Enlightenment that has decided to walk into the sea. So when I start walking, everything's shallow. The, the water's up to my knees. So I can walk across the beach in any direction and, you know, the water's going to be shallow. As I move deeper into the sea, the world starts covering me. So I think that the depth of knowledge that we have in each of the different fields is a representation of the sea. Back in the 1800s, you could be a polymath because the depth of the knowledge we had on each field was shallow. Right now, I, I'm like there's a rift after that continent platform. That's what general. Yeah, uh, artificial intelligence is like we've been moving uh, linearly, but I think that depth is going to increase exponentially. Um, so, in a way, I have conflicting vision here. Um, on one regard, I think that education right now should be focused on attempting to create polymaths to bulletproof people against an uncertain future because mm -hmm. we knew 20 years ago 30 40 100 that if i started if i train in a profession or a trade i could live off a of bat we don't know what we will be living off in 10 years let alone 20 or 30 so we need to know and and be as malleable and adaptable as possible right now uh if you specialize, you're narrowing down your chances of survival. And in that regard, I mean, on the other hand, we have this potential technology that will know anything and everything, or at least way more than we can as individuals. So why not outsource that? Like, why would it do anything? Why not fall into complacency and let my robot do stuff for me and that's um like you are not gonna learn to swim so once global warming brings th those waters more ashore you know that, that depth where you were comfortably comfortably living in you're gonna drown because the water level is gonna cover you for sure so i think mm. this it, the impending rise of general artificial intelligence is a signal for us to say, like, get moving, man. Get moving. you got to be prepared. This is not the moment to be complacent. Mm. This is the moment to start learning as much as you can about anything mm. to be ready for that. I love it. The metaphor is basically learn how to swim. Uh, in the world of AI, basically, because um, that's what it is. It's like it's a very watery type of thing. The the water, you know, Bruce Lee quote uh, that I, I'm going to butcher it, but essentially just that, you know, water finds a way no matter what. Give it a million years, it's going to find it. And so learn how to be very, very fluent with uh, that water aspect of intelligence, because this sort of rigid thing over the last 300 years where we kind of have this plan and we follow the plan um, and the plan is going to work like that, that might change significantly. Um, okay, let's go into AI training. Um, were you surprised at all by 
AI training. And, you know, most of these listeners are probably going to be from Invisible. So they know uh, a little bit about AI training. And, and basically, if you don't know, it's essentially a lot of the AI training, if it's reinforcement learning through human feedback, is you have churns where, where you have a human being create a scenario in their head as the user and then as the bot. And then they, 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 um, they can do various turns in order to show the bot how to be more respectful, how to be more accurate, how to be all of these different things. Was there anything that surprised you about AI training? Was there anything that you learned about AI training that kind of gave you more insight into human nature? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I start? Uh, first thing that surprised me was that throughout the past year, explosion of ways in which you can train AI models. Like it used to be as simple as create a conversation or here's a, a conversation that already happened, uh, finish it up or see what the model responded, rank those responses, uh, annotate that. And we have so much more diversity and so much more complexity at the same time that the bar is getting raised. Um, I think in a way, and given invisible uh, past as a BPO, uh, in a way we've structured ourselves and we've operated in many ways following that mental model of how a call center used to work. And that was fine as long as the level of complexity remains constant. But with these things going on in AI, we have to start thinking differently. Like how do we upskill our workforce fast enough to be able to, to help them keep up with the, the, the pace of things, with how these can, uh, these tasks evolve over time. We're training models in tens of different ways, like in terms of their personality, their steerability, uh, their tone, their style, actual accuracy. Uh, you can name it. And I'm just speaking about large language models. We also work in, in our auto modes uh, image, audio, audiovisual content. Uh, so I mm. think that we are living this in real time and we're getting, uh, I think that like the first glimpse be be before these things goes out, go out into the public. So in a way we, we kind of like see with, with just a little bit of time in advance, not too much, but we kind of like see where things are going. And I think that the challenge we're having is like, okay, how do we adapt? How do we move all together? How we can make one cohesive experience for everyone, especially now that we are scaling, like we will have a lot more internal mobility. So we need everybody who's working on AI trainer to be ready to jump from one side to the other uh, on short notice. Uh, this is moving fast. So those are things that surprised me because uh, in a corporate setting, I wasn't used uh, to, to this amount of pivoting. I've seen it like in, 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 in during my time as an entrepreneur or while running startups, you can see that, but never in a corporate setting and, and especially working with, with, with a technology that is so rapidly evolving. Mm. That's really interesting. And that, that gets a sense that Invisible's unique culture as well is that it's able to do that. And not only able to do that in a small level, 
because there are probably 2,500 people at Invisible in general, whether it's contractors or, or, or full-time. So when you have that many people, coordination costs become very, very challenging. And then even with that sort of institutional weight, that invisible just has to fall under because like it's just coordination costs. And like the more people you get, the harder it is to all be as one cohesive whole. And the fact yes, that- and I, Yeah, go for it. Yep. Yeah, and I think this is one of our strengths. Also given our BPO past, we have the tools, we have the know-how to be able to structure future processes and to organize the, the company, the agency in a way that we could face that future, even though uncertain, with the certainty that we have the tools to battle any scenario that reality poses us. That's cool. Um, and that's very, very unique and very valuable. Uh, because and so what do you think is a company? What is a corporation? What's your take on because you've you've been in startups, you've been in corporations, you've been in big ones like IBM, HBSBC, uh, you've started your own company, you've also um, uh, been involved in a rapidly hyper growth company. What's your take on this question of what a corporation is and what it does? Hmm. Okay, I think that I, I'm not a big person to put, put things into boxes. So I would say that every corporation is an entity on its own. It has it, its own soul. And depending on the environment that that corporation inhabits, it takes a very specific shape or form. And then it's all about natural selection. Mm -hmm. uh, whether the internal buildup of your company is equipped to deal with the reality and the competition that it's facing in its environment. So in that regard, I'd see invisible. The company has such a unique setup. I think it's the first company in my life that I've seen that does not treat contractors as contractors. Mm -hmm. If you're a contractor, you're not a number. You may not be like officially a part of this company, but we're going to make you feel as if you were, you know, uh, we're going to look after you when you join us, we're going to hold your hand we're going to walk you, walk you through the finish line. And if needed, we're going to walk with you those first couple of steps in, in your first day at school. Uh, so I don't think that is something that happens with the overwhelming majority of the companies that employ contractors. So in that regard, you have this like ex like this shell that's built around the company that also is part of the company. It's part of its soul. It's part of its shield, and 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 that's culture as well. The fact that Invisible has been able to extend its corporate culture to ex external team members. I don't know. You tell me how many examples of that you've seen. Yeah, I have not seen many. Um, it is it is quite unique. Um... And so how can, because the, the craziest thing about Invisible is that it's not only uh, doing this for its customers and clients to help them figure out how to adapt to this wave, but it also needs to adapt internally to this wave of AI. I know that you've been on the training side of it, so you've been more focused on helping the trainers understand how to actually train the AI uh, but it, do you have any thoughts of how to implement the AI or enable the AI? Like, have you seen anything interesting going on at Visible that you can publicly share about uh, how we've been able to figure out how to actually improve the processes using AI? 
Okay, first of all, uh, I'd like to say that we are all learning as we go. And in that way, it's not a top-down approach where these are the guidelines, this is the policy, this is how we do things. Like, we propose, look, this is what we think is a good onboarding process. This is the way in which we can support an onboarding process and at the same time upskill our current work workforce. But then it's them, the trainers, the QAs, the leads. Uh, it's everyone who contribute to this and help help shape up those initial ideas or prototypes that we have. So everything we do, at least within my umbrella, it's co-created. And I think there's great potential in GPTs or GPT-like technology to build like very specific assistance for very specific purposes that could aid us in our processes. I have some running, but not in the open because these, these GPTs are also prone to hallucinations. So mm. are they ready to be deployed in a production environment? Mm. Maybe, but if you're working with sensitive areas such as people or even uh, very complex guidelines in a campaign that require a lot of subjectivity, those GPTs will not cut it. I think a lot of what we are doing in AI training right now needs the human, period. We need humans to train these AIs. We're gonna have a problem soon, and I don't know how we're gonna solve this problem, but with the rise of synthetic data, we're going to see a different internet. You will, do, you will not know what was written by a human or what was written by, by an AI model. What's up? I, so I have I have two interviews coming up uh, on my personal channel, Crazy Wisdom, that are going to go into synthetic data. Um, very very interested to see where that that heads. But um, uh, the thing you you mentioned that a human won't be able to tell whether because even now it can be difficult to tell whether ChatGPT wrote the thing. Generally, we have intuitions because you you can kind of tell it's like it's got its own voice and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. Well, my parents still reply to chain emails and talk to yep. uh, yes. okay. a Nigerian princess. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think everyone has the critical thinking skills or the green comprehension skills to detect a language. And I can read a paragraph and I can automatically say that it was built with this or that uh, chatbot. But if you haven't been exposed for hours on end, during yes, yeah. weeks or months, you won't recognize, you know, the mannerisms. And we create more customized bots, bots that are more aching to, like that resemble your personality. Like the blurry line becomes like a complete Gaussian blur of your screen. Um. Oh man, there's a great. Oh yeah, so I, I've somebody uh, somebody shared a, a specific tactic that teachers are using uh, in order to evaluate whether something has been written by an AI or not. And what they do is they inside. Oh, I forget. It's it's. I think it's inside the lesson assignment that they give to their students. They put a hidden message uh, that that a human can't read, but the computer can read. Um, and then something about it that uh, that in in the lesson they put this like 
a thing that a human can't read. So they don't know. And then if it shows up inside the thing, I'm going to get it. It's like a Trojan horse that this teacher had done. So there are various, and this is what it goes back to that sort of alien intelligence. Um, it's sort of like the hacking ethos of technology in general, because there are all these exploits that happen. And you can be a good uh, white hat hacker, you can be a black hat hacker, you can be a gray hat hacker. And that same thing is going to happen to ChatGPT. But as we were talking about, non-deterministic. So it's just, it, in my opinion, it's probably going to get very, the hacks are going to get very strange, as we've already seen with the fact that you can get better prompts by saying, um, take this step by step, take a deep breath. Uh, uh, it's imperative that you do this really well. Here's a $10 bribe. Um, all those different things, like th those things are wacky. The fact that those things work. What's your take on this on this new world we're entering in terms of that? Uh, well, we'll definitely see a lot of original ways uh, to hack into anything. And let's wait until these models are able to hack by themselves. Uh, we're not that far away from that. So how creative can they get, given enough compute power and enough knowledge and training. So I think this tech could be a, a bit more dangerous than a nuclear bomb in terms that if I want to build a nuclear bomb, I need to find myself some radioactive materials where, which are not easy to find in the supermarket. But if you know how to code, if you know how to deploy an LM, then you have, if you have nefarious intentions, what's stopping you? And if you have nefarious intentions and a decently good AI model or a future general intelligence at your disposal, so one bad actor can do a lot of damage with almost no resources. Mm -hmm. And then the 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 white hat hacker, the white hat AI hacker, then will also come up with interesting solutions to that problem. It'll be a very like. It's like nothing, nothing new here. There's nothing new. Um, it's, you know, humanity has been going through this, you know, the kind of fight between good and evil for a very long time. Um, and so, but it's just the the tools that we have our disposal are just going to speed up the process, it seems. Um, it's going to be an arms race, for sure. Yeah, arms race. My favorite arms race to talk about is, is I for the past year, I've been trying to get my insurance company to pay for a roof that was collapsed. Uh, and then... In, in in the US, there's this just labyrinth form of bureaucracies. Uh, and it's so interesting being in Argentina where I can send crypto and easily pay for something. Uh, and then I've got this check that I'm trying to get from the uh, insurance company and they've mailed the check and the mail system uh, uh, stopped working. So I had to get them to reissue the check. And then now I have to endorse the check and I'm down in Argentina. I have no idea how I'm going to endorse the check. And then I have to get my mortgage company. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to an AI uh, bureaucracy arms race where the, the the human beings will figure out how to apply the AI to the bureaucratic tasks that like nobody should be doing. Like the things that I'm being required to do are just like so Kafka-esque. Like it's just so, and then the bureaucracy itself will then start to put barriers towards the AI and it'll be like a, just this crazy, crazy, I'm looking forward to that. But I think the AI will win. What do you think? Yeah, imagine how simple our lives would be if our whole bureaucratic system worked uh, with an AI using blockchain technology to ensure the safety and transparency of operations. How easy everything, uh, those hours lost queuing up yeah. that you, you get back for yourself. So 
there's going to be pushback because that's a lot of jobs. Yes, and that's exactly. a lot of jobs in, yeah. in positions of power or connected to uh, positions of power. So ultimately, Uber won. You know, taxis lost. Yep, yep. The internet won. Snail may lost. Yep. It's inevitable. Yep. Uh, so let's take the last five to 10 minutes to talk about uh, the LLMs on your computer or the LLMs on your phone. Do you think there's any reason to have a local model? Uh, like besides like going off into the woods where you have no internet access, but that's going to become increasingly harder to find with Starlink. Um, uh, what's your take on the having the models on our phones or on our computer versus uh, just connecting to the cloud to use the cloud LLMs? Well, I, I don't know why we couldn't have both. Mm. Uh, like I live in Patagonia and I go trekking. So it's, let's say I get lost in the middle of the steppe and uh, I'm a dork because I didn't take my survival classes. So I may, I may be able to ask my LLM like, hey, dude, I need to, to make a fire. How do I do that? I'm in here. These are the conditions. Or just look around. I'll show around with my camera. Look, how can I build a shelter with this? Uh, so I do still see, you know, uh, a lot of benefits in having models running locally. Yeah, so it's like a redundancy, basically. Yep. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's yes, cool. Especially, let's say that you, you, you can keep, like, in a way, if you could have some degree of control over your local LM, and let's say that for some reason your favorite LM gets hacked or goes haywire, so you would still have that second source that it's safe to you. It's like a cold wallet in crypto. So you have hot wallets running into the cloud. They get updated. You have no control. But your own model, that's just yours. Not your model, not your... We have to point something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not your model, not your model, not your compute. Not your model, not your creativity. Something there. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> Uh, well, cool. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? Uh, no, um, I've, I would just want to thank you for all of the Plainside podcasts. You know, uh, I, I've got to know a lot of people who I haven't had the chance to, to interact yet at the company. Uh, it really brings to light all the, the, the diversity that we have within Invisible, you know, so, so, so many different mindsets, so different backgrounds and i think that melting pot is a place to stay especially in in the times that are coming uh i think invisible is a great bulletproof vest for the for the, whatever five years bring to us yep uh thank you so much for coming on the show uh how can our listeners find you if they work at invisible and if they don't work at invisible is there any way they can they can touch get in touch with you uh, I net pretty much every social network I have footprint on. My uh, handle is always always the same, F and my last name. <laughs> awesome. Letter F, Tarnagol. Tarnagol, T A R N O G O L. Yes, and also like my last name is uh, a species uh, in vice of extinction. There are not many more left of us. We're only I think well, my I think there's eight people nine with my last name on the planet so not hard to find me wait wait wait, wait. <laughs> so what's what's the background there okay so my great great grandparents uh they were 
Jewish and they were living in Ukraine or what is now Ukraine. And there was a race against uh, Jews back in 1904. So they had to escape. So my great, great grandma took two of her kids on her arms. She had to escape. She hid uh, within a hay pile. Soldiers came biking. They killed one of the kids. The one that survived uh, moved to Argentina with, with her. And we think we've done investigations. We've never found the, the answer. But we think that when they got to Argentina, A, they were too afraid to speak their real last name or B, someone at immigration just misunderstood their last name. Uh, we have some theories of where that last name is coming from or what it could actually be, but no certainties. Oh, interesting. So they made up the name that you currently have, Tarnagal. In a way, we think yeah, they did. Yeah. Many such cases, both in the U.S. One of my one of my uh, best friends growing up, uh, he was from China, or his 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 parents' parents were from China, and uh, they had the last name Fong, uh, F-O-N-G, and they realized that well, first of all, there's a lot of racism against Asians when they when they were when they moved, and then second of all, nobody could pronounce Fong. Uh, so they changed their name to Phone, F-O-N-E, um, and uh, and so yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff. That's you know out here on the Western Hemisphere. I know some of the listeners are probably are over on the Eastern Hemisphere, but we got some crazy stuff going on over here on the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Definitely, we do. Thanks for. All right, Seward. Nice talking to you. But hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.